I'm Stevie Nicks and welcome to In My Life, the podcast where we get to learn a little bit more about our favourite artists from someone who should know them. Today we're going to take a listen to Bob Dylan, a man who has been on the record for 60 years. And yet, and yet what do we truly know about him? Well, I'll tell you what we know about him. Next to nothing. And that's just as he wants it. You kind of have to admire how he's been able to achieve that, given how many times a microphone has been put in front of him. But just because Dylan doesn't reveal too much of himself, it doesn't mean his interviews are any less engrossing. You just have to look a little harder to unearth the pearls of wisdom, and at times casual winsome, he's willing to reveal. And that's what I've done today. I've brought out an excavator, dug through the dross of the myriad interviews that are still on the record, and dusted off the nuggets buried beneath. Now I've decided to concentrate on interviews from his key periods, the early 60s, the mid-60s, his early 80s Christian period, his mid-80s nadir, the early 2000s when he became an elder statesman, and his Nobel Prize for Literature speech in 2017. Today you'll get to hear Dylan both candid and contrary, erudite but evasive. Many of his answers are short and all too sharp, but occasionally he'll elaborate and let us in a little closer. Today you'll hear the greatest songwriter of this or any generation speak on the record about his childhood and parents, why he changed his name, his influences, his disdain for the press, Time magazine in particular, songwriting, and a couple of his most iconic songs. That's quite a lot to get through. So we better get to it. What was it you wanted? Tell me again so I know. What's happening in there? What's going on in your show? What was it you wanted? Could you say it again? I'll be back in a minute. You can get it together by then. Bob Dylan was born Robert Zimmerman. You may call me Bobby, or you may call me Zimmy. On May 24, 1941, in Duluth, Minnesota, but he was raised in Hibbing from the age of six. His parents, Abram and Beattie, were part of a small, close-knit Jewish community, and his father and uncles ran a furniture and appliance store. Here's what Dylan had to say about his childhood and his parents on 60 Minutes in 2004. I really didn't consider myself happy or unhappy. I always knew that there was something out there that um, uh, I needed to get to, and it, it wasn't where I was at that particular moment. It wasn't in Minnesota? No. They wouldn't have, have wanted that uh, for me, but uh, my parents never went anywhere. My father probably thought the capital of the world was where wherever he was at the time. It couldn't possibly be where any you know, any place else where he and his wife were in their own home. That, to them, was the capital of the world. What made you different? What pushed you out of there? Well, I listened to the radio a lot. I hung out in record stores, and I slam-banged around on a guitar and played the piano and and uh, learned songs from uh, a world which didn't exist around me. And here's what he told DJ Studs Terkel in 1963, just after Free Willin' came out. The beginning, you know, was... Uh there in Minnesota, but uh, that, that was the beginning before the beginning. <laughs> the beginning was the, 
The beginning was uh, not till about three, four years ago. Yes, my guards stood hard when abstract threats too noble to neglect deceived me into thinking I had something to protect. Good and bad, I define these terms quite clear, no doubt, somehow. Ah, but I was so much older than I'm younger than that now. But Robert had other ideas, and those ideas were inspired and fertilised by what was coming out of the radio, particularly the blues and country music stations. At school, Robert formed a couple of bands and played Elvis and Little Richard covers. Now, during his Nobel speech, which he recorded in 2016, he had this to say about the world that Buddy Holly had opened up for him. If I was to go back to the dawning of it all, I guess I'd have to start with Buddy Holly. Buddy died when I was about 18 and he was 22. From the moment I first heard him, I felt akin. I felt related, like he was an older brother. I even thought I resembled him. Buddy played the music that I loved, the music I grew up on, country western, rock and roll, and rhythm and blues. Three separate strands of music that he intertwined and infused into one genre, one brand. And Buddy wrote songs, songs that had beautiful melodies and imaginative verses. And he sang great. He sang in more than a few voices. He was the archetype, everything I wasn't and wanted to be. I saw him only but once, and that was a few days before he was gone. I had to travel a hundred miles to get to see him play, and I wasn't disappointed. He was powerful and electrifying and had a commanding presence. I was only six feet away. He was mesmerizing. I watched his face, his hands, the way he tapped his foot, his big black glasses, the eyes behind the glasses, the way he held his guitar, the way he stood, his neat suit, everything about him. He looked older than 22. Something about him seemed permanent, and he filled me with conviction. Then out of the blue, the most uncanny thing happened. He looked me right straight dead in the eye, and he transmitted something, something I didn't know what. And it gave me the chills. I think it was a day or two after that that his plane went down. And somebody, somebody I'd never seen before, handed me a Lead Belly record with the song Cotton Fields on it. And that record changed my life right then and there. Transported me into a world I'd never known. It was like an explosion went off. Like I'd been walking in darkness. And all of a sudden the darkness was illuminated. It was like somebody laid hands on me. I must have played that record a hundred times. In 
1959, aged 18, Robert enrolled at University of Minnesota, but only stayed a couple of months. Music was calling him, folk music in particular. As he says in the liner notes to 1985's biograph, quote, The thing about rock and roll is that, for me anyway, it wasn't enough. There were great catchphrases and driving rhythms, but the songs weren't serious or didn't reflect real life in a realistic way. I knew that when I got into folk music, it was more of a serious type of thing. The songs are filled with more despair, more sadness, more triumph, more faith in the supernatural, much deeper feelings, end quote. He starts playing in a few coffee houses, and it's around about this time that he decides to change his name to Bob Dylan. Now, there are many differing stories as to where he got the name Dylan from. According to respected biographer Robert Shelton, Dylan first confided his change of name to his high school girlfriend Echo Hellstrom in 1958, telling her that he had found a, quote, great name, Bob Dylan, end quote. But Dylan was spelt D-I-L-L-O-N. Shelton says that that spelling of Dylan would have had two sources. Matt Marshall Dylan, who was the hero of the TV western Gunsmoke, and Dylan was also the name of one of Hibbing's principal families. Now, popular wisdom has it that Dylan changed the spelling in honour of the poet Dylan Thomas, but Shelton says that Dylan told him when writing the book to, quote, Straighten out in your book that I did not take my name from Dylan Thomas. Dylan Thomas's poetry is for people that aren't really satisfied in their bed, for people who dig masculine romance. End quote. Shelton says that Dylan changed the spelling when he reached New York in 1961. Now, Dylan has been asked quite a few times over the years to explain the name change, and not all of his answers align themselves. Here he is in 1985 on Cleveland's WMS. I think I was just playing somewhere one night, and um, the club owner asked me uh, what my name was, and... Uh, that was the name that came into my mind. I don't think there was really any, anything really profound about it. Are the stories that it was taken from poet Dylan Thomas true? Is that well, I, I'm, I think I heard, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'd heard that story, but, and I knew who Dylan Thomas was, but I'm not sure if I was familiar with his poetry or not. Huh, interesting. And here he is again on CBS's 60 Minutes. Some people get born, you know, to the wrong names, wrong parents. I mean, that happens. Tell me how you decided on Bob Dylan. You call yourself what you want to call yourself. This is, this is the land of the free. And then to completely contradict what he told Shelton, he wrote in his memoir Chronicles that he considered adopting the surname Dylan, that's Dylan with a double L, before unexpectedly seeing poems by Dylan Thomas and decided to adopt that spelling. So who the hell knows? Dylan being deliberately disingenuous is nothing new. Right back from his first interviews, he was perpetuating a myth that he would often just make up on the spot. For example, in 1961, just after his first album came out, he painted this picture for his backstory. I was a cleanup boy. I used to uh, be on a main line on a Ferris wheel, do just run rides. Didn't that interfere with your schooling? Well, I skipped a bunch of things, and I didn't go to school a bunch of years, and I skipped this and skipped that. That's what I figured. <laughs> All came out even, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tune this one. It's open E. Oh, I got one. I got two of them. 
Uh, actually, I wrote a song once. I'm trying to find. It's about this lady I knew in the carnival, and there was had a freak show in it. You know, all the midgets and all that kind of stuff. Well, there was one lady in there, uh, really bad shape. Like her skin had been all burned, and she was a little baby. You know, and it didn't grow right, and so she was like a freak. And all these people would pay money, you know, to see. And that really sort of got me. It's a funny thing about them. I know all those people think they want to sell you stuff, you know, as spectators. Like they sell little cards of themselves, you know, for like 10 cents. You know, they got a picture on it and it's got some story. You know, and here they are on stage. They want to make you have two thoughts. Like they want to make you think that they don't feel bad about themselves. And also they want to make you feel sorry for them. I was like that. And I wrote a song for her. It was called, Won't You Buy a Postcard? Can't remember that one though. Dylan did not want to be pinned down or typecast. Besides, growing up in Hibbing didn't exactly make for interesting reading so he figured what harm could be done with a little embellishing. And once he began, well, he just ran with it. Now, the other reason that Dylan would have decided to be less than honest, less than honest with the facts, was that many reporters, particularly once he became famous, started to take his quotes out of context, or at least their editors did. This rightly rankled Dylan, and he pretty much never forgave them. His messy relationship with the press and his reluctance to grant too many interviews has been a line of questioning pretty much right through his career. Then there were the inane questions that he was forced to answer. For example, there was this one in 1965 at a press conference held at LA airport. The question is, how many protest singers are there? (laughs) Over to you, Bob. Uh, How many? Yes. Are there many? Who yeah, well, I, I think there's about uh, 136. You say about 136? Yeah. Or do you mean exactly 136? Uh, it's either 136 or 142. It's called Masters of War. Come, your masters of war. You that build the big guns. You that build the death planes. You that build all the bombs. You that hide behind walls. You that hide behind discs. I just want you to know I can see through your mask. You that never done nothing But built to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy You put a gun in my hand And you hide from my eyes And you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly. All this during his 1965 press conference at San Francisco's airport. The journalist begins by acknowledging the fact that Dylan doesn't like labels. And then he asks him to label himself. I mean, what the heck? Well, I sort of label myself as well under 30. And my role is to, uh, you know, to just uh, stay here as long as I can. (laughs) (laughs) 
And then there were a few journalists who simply hadn't done their homework. This is also from his 1965 San Francisco press conference. Do you prefer songs with a subtle or obvious message? With a what? A subtle or obvious message. Uh, I don't really prefer those kind of songs at all. A message, you mean like, what song with a message? Well, like Eve of Destruction and things like that. Do I prefer that to what? I don't know, but your songs are supposed to have a subtle message. Subtle message? Well, they're supposed to. <laughs> Where'd you hear that? In a movie magazine. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, we, don't, we don't discuss those things here. He played along there, but in general, Dylan has been pretty dismissive, and understandably so. Now, I'll play you a few of his thoughts on the topic of why he doesn't like doing interviews. First, here he is again at San Francisco. Oh, no, no. I I just know in my own mind that we all have uh, a different idea of all the words we're using. Uh, You know, so I don't really have too much... uh, I really can't take it too seriously because we're reading... Like, if I say the word house... Like, we're both going to see a different house. If I just say the word, right? So we're using all these other words, like mass production and moving magazine. We all have a different idea of these words, too. So I don't really know what we're saying here. Why do you No, it's not pointless. If you, know, if you want to do it, you know, and you're there, you know, it's not pointless. I mean, no, it doesn't hurt me any. Is there anything in addition to your songs that you want to say to people? Good luck. You don't say that in your songs. Oh, yes, I do. Every song tails off with good luck. (laughs) I hope you make it. (laughs) Um, Why, uh, I couldn't hit most of what you said. Who are you? (laughs) Get the camera on this uh, this person over here. What do you bother to write the poetry for if we all get different uh, images? And we don't know what you're talking about Oh, because about I've anyway. got nothing else to do, man. <laughs> you know, well, when they do want interviews in places like Omaha or in Cincinnati, man, you know, I don't, uh, I don't do it and then they write bad things. Well, isn't this partly because uh, you're often inaudible, like for most of this dialogue or monologue, you have been inaudible, and now when you're touched personally by uh, the misquotation, your voice rises, and oh, we yeah. can hear you. Uh, yeah, well, I just realized that maybe the people in the back there can't yeah. hear me, that's I, awesome. I was going to ask you whether you're, you know, in your songs you sing out. Yes, pretty, I do. And whether in your and Well, the songs are what I do. You see, the, the songs, though, are, is what I do, yeah. is, is write the songs and sing them. Uh, and perform them. That's what I do. Uh, the performing part of it could end. But, like, uh, I'm going to be writing these songs and singing them on <coughs> records for, you know, I see no end right now. Uh, that, that's what I do. Uh, anything else just interferes with it. I mean, anything else trying to get on top of it, making something out of it, which it isn't, it just brings me down. And, and uh, it's not, it's not, it, it's just uh, makes it seem all very cheap. 
Well, it made me feel like you were almost doing a kind of penance of silence here. No, no. For the first time. No, I'm not one of those no, kind of people at all. You don't all. need silence. No, no silence. It's always silent where I am. <laughs> here he is in 1981 on London Radio. Performers feel that, that they don't feel that they, they're adversaries, but they do feel that uh, a lot of the... A lot of the uh, they feel a lot of times that their points are, are not taken the right way, or uh, they feel imposed upon to answer questions that have really little to do with why they fill uh, uh, halls or sell records. Here he is four years later. People ask, you know, questions uh, in the past, which really, uh, up until recently, they haven't really asked me anything that I really care to, to it's more like uh, uh, the, the interviews and the, the questions that they start out asking in the music magazines, you know, and there was, you know, it's more like that what, what you eat for breakfast type of thing. Most people just want to know that, they want to go into your personal life and, and, and um, questions which are, you know, I didn't really feel like, like I wanted to take time to really answer or, or expound upon. But this whole concept of mass communications is... Well, sometimes you have to be, you know, you have to do uh, publicity things so people will actually sometimes just uh, leave you alone as if, you know, if what they want to know maybe really isn't that important after all. Uh, then again, you also want to sell records. Yeah. And that's but I'm not sure whether interviews or, or publicity sells records. I'm not convinced of it. But you know. I, but you I, do want to sell records. Sure. <laughs> well, For reasons other than the financial ones, or uh, well, everybody wants to sell records. That's why you make them, you know. Yeah. And here he is on 60 Minutes. I realized at the time that the press, the media, they're not the judge. God's the judge. The only person you have to think about lying twice to is either yourself or to God. The press isn't either of them, and uh, I just figured it irrelevant. His most fiery exchange, however, came in 1965 during an interview with a journalist from Time magazine. Dylan is positively disdainful. Yeah, I won't be able to talk to you afterwards. I got nothing to say about these things I write. I mean, I just write them. I don't to say anything about them. I don't write them for any reason. There's no great message. I mean, if, if you know, you want to tell other people that, go ahead and tell them. But I'm not going to have to answer to it. And they're just going to think, you know, what's this Time magazine telling us? But that, you couldn't care less about that either. You don't know the people that read you. Because, uh, you know, uh, I've never been in Time magazine, and yet this hall's filled twice. You know, uh, and I've never been in Time magazine. I don't need Time magazine. And I don't think I'm a folk singer. You'll probably call me a folk singer. But, you know, the other people know better. Because the people that, you know, that buy my records listen to me don't necessarily read Time Magazine. You know the audience that subscribe to Time Magazine? The audience of, of the, the people that want to know what's happening in the world week by week. The people that work during the day and can read it. It's small, right? And it's concise. And there's pictures in it. I mean, those kind of, you know, those, a certain class of people. It's a class of people that take the magazine seriously. I mean, sure, I can read it. You know, I read it. I read it on the airplanes, but I don't take it seriously. If I want to find out anything, I'm not going to read Time magazine. I'm not going to read Newsweek. I'm not going to read any of these magazines. I mean, because they just got too much to lose by printing the truth. You know that. What kind of truth are they reading? On anything, even on a worldwide basis. 
They just go off the stands in a day if they printed really the truth. What is really the truth? Really the truth is just a plain picture. Of, of, you know, a plain picture of, uh, of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, 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 you know, a tramp vomiting, man, into the sewer, you know, and, 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 uh, and next door to the picture, uh, you know, Mr. Rockefeller or, you know, Mr. Uh, C.W. C. Jones, you know, on the subway going to work. Uh, you know, any kind of picture. Just, just make some sort of collage of pictures, which they don't do. They don't do. There's no ideas in Time Magazine. There's just these facts, well, you know, which too are switched because even the article on your, what you're doing, the way it's going to come out, don't you see, it can't be a good article because the guy that's writing the article is sitting in a desk in New York. He's not, he is not even going out of his office. He's just going to get all these 15, uh, you know, reporters and they're going to send him a quota, you know. No, he's going to put himself on. He's going to put all his readers on and, and, you know, and another week will be, you know, have some space in the magazine. But that's all. It means nothing to anybody else. I'm not putting that down because people have got to eat and live, you know. But uh, be, be, at least be honest about it. You know, I mean, sure. I know more about what you do, and, and you don't even have to, have to ask me how or why or anything, uh, just by looking, you know. Then you, you'll, you'll ever know about me, ever. I mean, I could tell you, I could tell you, you know, I'm not a folk singer and explain to you why, but you wouldn't really understand. All you could do, you could nod your head. You would nod your head. No, I couldn't even be willing to try because it, it, it would be, it's, you know, there's certain things which, every, every word, every word has its little letter and big letter. No, it's not pigeonhole. It's not the word at all. You know, every word has its little letter and big letter, like the word no. You know, the word no, K-N-O-W. Okay, you know the word no, capital K-N-O-W? Like, each of us really knows nothing. Right? But we all think we know things. I really know nothing. Dylan wrote a song about these journalists and critics right about this time. Positively 4th Street. I know the reason that you talk behind my back. I used to be among the crowd you're in with. Do you take me for such a fool? Say how are you, good luck, but you don't mean it When you know as well as me You'd rather see me paralyzed Why don't you just come out once and scream it No, I do not feel that good the heartbreaks you embrace If I was a master thief Perhaps I'd rob them And though I know you're dissatisfied With your position and your place Don't you understand It's not my problem 
Bob Dylan was a long way removed from Robert Zimmerman, then it's also fair to say that Bob Dylan is a long way removed from the young man who emerged from the folk circuit looking and sounding like Woody Guthrie, a man who he was obsessed about at the time. He even went as far as visiting a dying Guthrie in hospital. Here's what he had to say about Woody Guthrie in 1963. Now you did something. You were in the Midwest, and one day you you took off and you went to the hospital in New Jersey to visit Woody. Why'd you do that? Well, I didn't take off for uh, the hospital there. I was around the country uh, before that, and I'd heard of Woody. I knew Woody. I saw Woody once a long, long time ago in Burbank, California, which was when I was just a little boy. I I don't even remember uh, seeing him, you know. And I I heard him play. That's interesting. You say when you were a very little boy. Yeah, it was about, I think it must have been about 10. Who took you here? Your parents took you there? My uncle. Your uncle took you there, and you were very small. Yeah. And that was a memory you remember, though, don't you? Yeah, I remembered uh, Woody that time, yeah. What was it stuck in your mind? That, uh... It stuck in my mind that he, he was Woody. And uh, everybody else I could see around me was just everybody else. Uh-huh. But he was Woody. You mean there was no one else but one? Yeah. Well, every time I go sing any songs I wrote for Woody, he always wants to hear a song for Woody. <laughs> hey, hey, Woody Guthrie, I wrote you a song. About a funny old world that's coming along. Seems sick and it's hungry, it's tired and it's torn It looks like it's a dying and it's hardly been born Hey, Woody Guthrie, but I know that you know All the things that I'm a-saying and a many times more I'm a singing you this song, but I can't sing enough. Cause there's not many men who've done the things that you've done. And here he is in 1965, being asked to define what a folk song is. Again, he doesn't take the question seriously. And who could blame him? How would you define folk music? How would you define folk music? As a constitutional replay of mass production. Do you call your songs prote- um, folk songs? No, no. Are protest songs folk songs? I guess if they're a constitutional replay of mass production. <laughs> Woody Guthrie wasn't his only influence, however. In 1985, listeners to Cleveland Radio were invited to call in and ask Dylan a question. And one person asked him to name a few poets who had influenced his writing. Here's his answer. John Keats. I used to read him quite a bit. Um, let's see. French poet uh, Arthur Rimbaud. And uh, all the guys in the 50s, um, Ginsberg and Corso and those guys. As I said in the John Lennon episode... Rolling Stone magazine anointed Dylan as the greatest songwriter who has ever lived, ahead of Paul McCartney and Lennon himself. When you think of Dylan's songs, many spring to mind, like a Rolling Stone and the times they are a-changing, for example. But there were a couple that he wrote before the times they are a-changing that have also greatly informed his legacy. 
One of them is blowing in the wind and the other is a hard rains are going to fall. Here's what he had to say about blowing in the wind in 1985. Well, I can sing most of my songs um, if I'm in the right frame of mind. Uh, that's one that I, I usually do sing because people like to hear that one. Does it have a special meaning for you or is it one in the catalog? Well, it's more of an anthem type thing. And um, for me, I'm not sure how valid it is. I usually sing it because people always call out for it. And then when I see something, you know, that uh, I mean, they, they might, they always seem to want to hear whether they really do or not, I don't know. You know but uh, I usually sing it or some tours I haven't sung it on and I haven't missed it at all. But um, I guess, you know, some things you have to do all the time, you know. I guess everybody does. Some people exist before they're allowed to be free. Yes, and how many times can a man turn his head and pretend that he just doesn't see? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. And here's what he had to say about a hard rains are going to fall in 1963. Well, I'll tell you how I come to write that. All right. Uh, this is one of them kind of songs. It's just one of those I wrote like that. Was, that was, uh, I wrote that because, uh, you know, every line in that really is another song, you know. It could be used as a whole song, every single line. And I wrote that when uh, I didn't figure, I didn't know how many other songs I could write, you, know, you see. Uh, that was during, uh, I think, October of last year. And uh, I remember sitting up all night and uh, with a bunch of people someplace. And uh, I wanted to get the most down that I, I knew about into one song as I possibly could. So I wrote that. It was October mm -hmm. that night. What, that was during a crisis? Yeah, that was during that uh, uh, blockade, mm -hmm. I guess is the word. During Cuba. And you worried 
So you put it yeah, in the song. I was, I was a little worried. I can't say I was. Uh, I was you I was can't so say you were elated. Yeah, I was a little worried. Maybe that's the word. <laughs> so you wrote the song. Mm-hmm. When you say a hard rain, what do you mean? Although your song I just mean that some sort of end that's just got to happen. You know, which is very easy to see, but everybody doesn't really. Uh, it doesn't seem like. Uh, it seems like you're overlooking it. Well, it's bound to happen. You know, it's, it's bound to happen. It seems like this. Well, it's it's although it, I don't I'm not talking about the hard rain, meaning the atomic rain. Uh, seems to me like the bomb is, is a god in, in some sort of a way. It's more of a god. People worship it. Actually, you have to you have to be nice to it. You know, you have you can't uh, you have to be careful what you say about it. Uh, you know, you people work on it. They go. Uh, uh, six days a week and work on it. You have other people designing it. Well, I hate to think that anything is going to happen, but at least I recognize that it could happen. And uh, what's going to happen, it's got to be, a, there's got to be an explosion of some kind. Uh, uh, the, the hard rain is going to fall, as in the last verse, when I, when I say uh, where, the hung, where the pellets of poison are flooding the waters, that means all the lies, you know? All the lies that, that People get told in their radios and their newspapers, and which all you have to do is just think for a minute, you know, and try to take people's brains away, you know, which maybe it's been done already. I don't know. Maybe the I hate to think it's been done, but all the lies that which is I, I consider poison, you know. It's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard, it's a hard. 
this is probably a good time to let Dylan go into detail. Well, as much detail as he's willing to go into about his craft. When he accepted his Nobel Prize for Literature, Dylan seemed a little taken aback. Song lyrics, he said, were different to prose. They were written to be coupled with a melody and sung, not read from a page unaccompanied. And that's what songs are too. Our songs are alive in the land of the living. But songs are unlike literature. They're meant to be sung, not read. The words in Shakespeare's plays were meant to be acted on the stage, just as lyrics and songs are meant to be sung, not read on a page. And I hope some of you get the chance to listen to these lyrics the way they were intended to be heard, in concert or on record, or however people are listening to songs these days. I return once again to Homer, who says, Sing in me, O muse, and through me tell the story. In that same speech, he said that he set out to write songs unlike any that we had ever heard, and it has to be said that he achieved that lofty ambition. He said the only thing that was important with the song is that it moved the listener, that it had an impact. Dylan's songs, particularly the ones from the early 60s, unquestionably had an impact, a fact that troubled him when he became known as the spokesman for his generation. But we'll get to that next week. First, here's Dylan talking about his craft in 1963. Here he explains where his songs come from. I don't, I don't know how uh, I come to songs, you know, but doing what I'm doing, I'm doing. Uh, I mean, I start. It's not up to me, you know, to to. Exp- I don't really yeah. go into myself that deep, mm-hmm. and uh, you just go ahead and do I it. I just go ahead and do it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sort of trying to. Find a place to pound my nails, you know. In that same interview, he concedes that he has a gift for writing songs. I'm one of these people that thinks uh, that everybody has uh, certain gifts, you know, when they're born. And uh, get enough trouble trying to find out just what it is. Mm-hmm. I, fin- I figured first it was, uh, I used to play the guitar when I was 10, you know. So I figured, well, maybe my thing is playing the guitar. Maybe that's uh, my little gift. You know, like uh, like somebody can make a cake, mm-hmm. you know, or somebody else can saw a tree down, and you know, and uh, other people write, and no, nobody's really got the right to say that any one of these gifts are any better than any other buddies, you know, because uh, they're all you get them, you know. That's just where they're distributed out, and everybody uh, gets the same thing. And I ain't saying that this is exactly. Uh, what my gift is. Maybe I got a better gift, but as of right now, I ain't well, found it yet. good enough. Yeah, I'm thinking about this little piece I don't even you... call it a gift, you know. I don't even call it a gift. I, I, I told him my way of trying to explain <laughs> something that is very hard to explain. <laughs> In 1965, he was asked, how long does it take to write a song? And this is what he had to say. Uh, <clears throat> it's usually not too long time, really. I might write all night and get one song out of a lot of different things I write. How many have I written? Uh, I guess, well, there's one publisher that's got about 100. I've written about 50 others, I guess. i got about 150 songs I've written. In 1981, on a promotional tour for Shot of Love, and in an interview where he was annoyingly and incessantly strumming in the background... He confessed that he didn't know where his songs came from and that he was in fact amazed that he was still writing enough to make records. 
Uh, I never know one album to the next what kind of songs I'm going to be doing. It amazes me that I even continue to make albums. What do you mean by that? <laughs> I mean, it's just that much. Uh, uh, it's always a miracle of some kind when I make an album. Uh, because uh, it's so contrary to the way I move. Stay, working in a studio has uh, always been very uh, uh, difficult for me. Four years later, during the rounds to promote Empire Burlesque, he was asked if the words or the melody came to him first. Uh, I start all, all, the, all the kinds of ways. Sometimes I'll start with a, um, a guitar part. Uh, sometimes I'll start with a, a, a lyric part. And other times I may hear the whole thing in my head when I, if I wake up or before I go to bed or uh, sometime in the middle of the day. It's, it's sometimes the whole thing will just, will just happen. I'll hear it and I'll, and I'll try to put that down. He also said his songs were not all that complex. Well, they're all very simple songs. The, the, the chord structures are very simple and the, the, the timing on them is very simple. It's just rooted in either uh, folk music or country folk music or, or maybe country blues. And that's the only type of music that I really, uh, that's where I learned how to play and, and uh, I'm not really very an advanced technician on, the, on my instrument. But it serves me well to do just what I feel I, I need to do for myself. I can, I can play all right for me. Um, so I keep it right there, really. I don't really expand on, on into too many areas that I'm not familiar with musically. In that same interview, and again in 1986, he said he only persevered with songs that were easy to write. If he had to slave away at them, as he had sometimes done in the past, experience had taught him to abandon the project. Is, is it usually more like an illusion, the, the, the lines that come to you, or, or do you think of specific things and then develop your lyrics from, from that? Well, the best ones are written uh, very quickly. Uh, the longer it takes to finish the song, the, uh, the, 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 more, uh, the, the more difficulty it, you have in, in trying to pin it down and focus in on it, and you might lose your original intention. I've done that a few times, and, you know, I sort of just leave those songs go. Or I don't write songs if they're not easy to write. If it's hard for me to write something, I usually drop it. I don't usually uh, struggle with it. It's, I have done that, but uh, I don't usually like the results. During that 1981 interview where Dylan was playing while talking, the interviewer noted that outlaws seemed to be a recurring theme up to that point. There was Absolutely Sweet Marie, which contained the line, To live outside the law, you must be honest. There was also Outlaw Blues, Lenny Bruce, Joey, and this song. Pistol shots ring out in a barroom night Into Betty Valentine from the upper hall She sees a bartender in a pool of blood Champion. 
Anything conscious? Uh, I guess it has to go with where, where I grew up, how I grew up, uh, how I always grew up. Uh, you know, admiring those type of heroes: Robin Hood, uh, Jesse James. Uh, you know, the person who always uh, 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 kicked against the oppression. Was uh, had high uh, moral standards. Now, I don't know if these people I write about have high moral standards. I don't know if Robin Hood did, but you always assume that they did. I'm Joe Gallagher. In some kind of way, you have to assume that he did. In some kind of area, it's like I've never written a song about. Uh, some, uh, I mean, uh, some uh, Texas sniper or some rapist, yeah. or, uh, Texas sniper. Yeah. Now, uh, <laughs> uh, I get his name uh, up in the tower there, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, no, I, I've written so. I think I think what what I intend to do is just show the individualism of that uh, certain type of breed or certain type of uh, person that would uh, that must do that. And uh, but there is some type of standard I have for whoever I'm writing about. I mean, it amazes me that I would write a song about Joe Gallo. But you did. Yeah, well, long I, one too. Very long one. Yeah. Very long one. <laughs> yeah, what was that about? Uh, about eleven half minutes. hours. About eleven minutes. I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I, I feel that. Uh, you know, if I didn't do it, who would? <laughs> Speaking of Lenny Bruce and Shot of Love, track four, side one, was dedicated to the controversial Jewish comedian who died in 1966 from a drug overdose. Here's what he had to say during that same interview about Bruce and the song. Did that just song just come to you somewhere? Yeah, I wrote that song in about five minutes. Uh, it is true, I wrote it the once in Taxi Cab, uh, but... I thought it was a little strange after he died that people made such a hero out of him that when he was alive he couldn't even get a break. Uh, I thought he, that, and certainly now, comedy is very is rank and dirty and vulgar and and uh, very unfunny and, and uh, uh, stupid and wishy-washy and the whole thing. Some people and, thought he was rank and dirty some, and vulgar, and but he was. Uh, doing this same sort of thing many years ago and uh, maybe some people don't realize that there was a Lenny Bruce you know who who was the, who did this before and and uh, uh, this is what happened to him uh, so so these people can do what they're doing now I don't know
he was an outlaw That's for sure More of an outlaw Than you Speaking of Dylan's songs, a lot of journalists want Dylan to philosophise on life, God, politics, anything and everything. But he always refuses, pointing them instead to his songs. All of my thoughts and reasons are in those songs he continues to tell them. Here he is in 1981. The answers to those questions, they've got to be in all the songs of it. Some place, if you know this... uh, you know where where to look i think you find the answer to those questions is right there in the songs better than i could uh sit and talk about it yeah Mm -hmm. for sure and that'll do us for this week there is still a lot to talk about but we'll leave that for next week next week you'll hear dylan go on the record about why he felt a phony in the 60s why we're seemingly obsessed about the 60s and his theory will surprise you He's asked to go on the record and reveal the identity of Mr. Jones. He's also asked to locate specifically where Desolation Row is. We'll hear from him when he's knee-deep, or should that be kneeling down, in his born-again phase. He'll tell us about his stance on gun control and abortion. He'll talk about the recording process, writing songs versus writing books, and he'll talk about some more songs. And he'll also give us his thoughts on some of his peers, including John Lennon and Paul McCartney. But the biggest revelation comes when he predicts the arrival of Donald Trump. He doesn't name him, but hear what he has to say and see if you think Trump fits the bill. I certainly do. But that's all ahead of us next week. For now, let's go riding on the Mayflower. I was riding on the Mayflower when I thought I spied some land. <laughs> Start again. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not. Could be wrong. You say you told me that you wanna hold me, but you know you're not that strong. I just can't do that done before. I just can't beg you. Yeah.
If you want to dive a little deeper into Dylan's career, check out my other podcast, Song Sung You. There you'll find an episode devoted to the covers that his acoustic songs inspired, and another devoted to the covers that his electric songs inspired. Oh, and there's also a mixtape in there somewhere if you just want to play the music. Song Sung You. Come join me underneath the covers. Yeah.